The difference between other countries and ours is that our documents don't give us any rights. Our document simply tells government when they're infringing on them. Are you freaking kidding me? Oye chico, get kidding me, get kidding me. As Americans, we need to stop being so dependent in government. Government is not the solution. Government is actually the problem. Enough is enough. It's time to put America first. Welcome everyone. Bienvenidos to another podcast for the Hispanics Lead Right, presented by the Republican National Hispanic Assembly of Florida. Welcome to this week's episode of Hispanics Lead Right. My name is Santiago Avila Jr., the Constitutional Conservative, co-hosting with... Yvette, the Conservative Rican. Thank you, Santiago. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Awesome, Yvette. Uh, we have Byron Donalds today that we're going to be interviewing from your area. Is that correct, Yvette? That's correct. He's from my district. That's District 19. So Yvette is our regional director for the Collier Lee County area of the Republican National Hispanic Assembly of Florida. Uh, Yvette, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, telling us a little bit of how you came up with the name The Conservarican? Talk to us. Okay. Um, thank you, Santiago. Well, um, I'm originally from Puerto Rico, so uh, we call ourselves Boricuas, but if you're going to say it in English, we're Puerto Rican. So I figured since I'm a conservative and a Puerto Rican, I kind of like mixed the two, so I came up with Conservarican, which I think describes awesome. me pretty well. Um, I moved here to Florida about 16 years ago, um, like many of us looking for a better way of life and uh, more opportunities and I came here single and I met my husband and got married had my children and never went back um, I miss my little island but the United States is my country and I'm proud to say that I am an American um, and I love this country and um, I served in the armed forces I was in the air force um, thank you for your service Yeah, thank, uh, thank you. And that was the greatest honor that I've ever had to be able to serve um, this wonderful country that has given me so much. Um, today, I'm a small business owner. We own a uh, landscaping business, uh, my husband and I. And um, so it's been great. This country has been great. And um, I will continue to work hard to make sure that um, the Hispanic community um, uh, gets to know Uh, how great America is and, and how privileged we are to be here. You know, Yvette, uh, as somebody that also travels the whole state of Florida, you you're also a big traveler. I mean, uh, you're one of the members that has been out there kicking butt. You've gone all over the state when we've needed you here or there. You travel as well. I know that must take a lot of time from your family and, you know, on behalf of the RNHA of Florida, I want to give you a sincere thank you for all you're doing for our country, for the president, uh, for the state of Florida. Um, what what do you enjoy about the traveling, about meeting new people? I mean, what what drives you? Uh, is it the future of your kids? T t talk to us about that a little bit. Okay, first of all, I want to say thank you, Santiago, for giving me the opportunity 
um, to uh, be the leader in Southwest Florida, uh, Collier and Lee County. Um, I've met so many great people through the organization. I can't even say we're like a family. I, I consider the RNHA my, my family, and that's, that's how it's been from the beginning. Um, I enjoy traveling. Um, the way I did it, I, I had to sit my husband and kids down and say, listen, guys, you got to give me a year <laughs> because we have to fight for this country. This election is so important. Like I said, I have two sons. Uh, one is uh, 14, the other one is 12. And what drove me out of my house, I was a typical uh, you know, immigrant from Puerto Rico, come here, we go out and vote, but we don't really get involved in politics. Um, because it's very different in Puerto Rico than here, you know. So, but when the Kavanaugh hearings came and I saw what they did to that man, I thought about my two sons. And I said to myself, you know what? It, it, I cannot allow that to happen. My kids, I don't, I don't want them to go through that. So that drove me out of my house. And ever since then, I've been traveling the state. I've met wonderful people. Um, I love to educate. I love to... Uh, visit new places, uh, talk to people, um, see what their concerns are, and, and I'm always there. I love to serve, so in any way that I can help, I do it. And I do it because the future of our country is at stake, and we cannot allow it. I mean, we need to keep the United States of America as the land of opportunity and the greatest country in the world. And in order to do that, we have to reelect President Trump, and we have to elect more Republicans. So that's, that's what I'm here for. That's what the RNHA is doing for. I'm here also to promote and educate the Hispanic community to get more involved in politics uh, because it is important. Um, our vote is our voice and we need to be educated uh, before we go out and vote. Yvette, thank you. Um, Yvette Benaroch has a show coming up very soon called Mornings with Yvette the Conservarican. Uh, Yvette, they're gonna, it's going to be airing on Sundays, correct? That's correct, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm really excited, and I hope that um, people will enjoy it and then tune in on Sundays to listen to it. Yvette, what is your uh, RNHA email if people want to contact you and have you as a guest at, at one of their podcasts or on a show or on a TV? Where can they reach you to be able to contact you? Okay, so um, my the best way to do it is through email, and it's Yvette, that's Y-V-E-T-T-E, at R-N-H-A-F-L dot com. And I don't mind the travel, so if, uh, you know, I do speaking engagements, um, and I, I, I just love talking to people, so if you ever want to have me as a guest, just reach out. Thank you so much, Yvette. Please stay tuned for a message from one of our sponsors. And we are back from our commercial break. And uh, again, my name is Santiago Avila Jr. I'm one of your co-hosts. And my name is Yvette, the Conservarican, and I am excited and happy to be here co-hosting with you, Santiago. Awesome. Yvette, I'm excited that we have uh, Byron Donalds on our podcast today. Byron, how are you today, sir? I'm doing good. Uh, just staying safe like everybody else. <clears throat> good, good. 
Byron, can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, so the listeners know, uh, uh, you know, who we're talking to? Uh, sure. So um, my name is Byron Donald. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, that's where I grew up. Um, I live in Naples, Florida, Southwest Florida. I've been elected to the Florida House of Representatives since 2016. Um, and really, my time in the legislature has been fighting for, you know, conservative policies and principles, um, education reform. I've done work on criminal justice reform and on uh, uh, commerce issues, the, the issues dealing with marketplaces um, and our financial industry in the state of Florida. Um, <clears throat> I'm a husband. I have three sons. Uh, my sons are uh, 16, 12, and 8 years old. And in my in my normal life, in my regular life outside politics, I'm a partner in a wealth management firm, so I'm also a small business owner. Well, I am excited, Byron, that I'm here on the call because um, you are from my area, and now you're running for District 19, which is actually my district. And I have a question for you. Can you tell us about a piece of legislation you worked on that passed the Florida legislator that you're proud of? Oh, no, that's a great question. Uh, a couple of things. When I, my first year in the legislature, I worked on a piece of legislation that actually opened up um, classroom material to be viewed by members of the public. Uh, what's not really talked about is that the materials that go in front of our students are picked by bureaucrats mostly. And if a member of the public or a parent or a grandparent wanted to review and had objections, there was no pathway for them to raise those objections uh, to the school board or to the state um, in, in a meaningful way so that that material could either be removed from classes or that the school districts had an opportunity to buy something else instead of buying that piece of material. Uh, so I worked on the bill back in 2017 that allowed for that allowed for that to happen and create a pathway so citizens have more input into what's going on in the classroom uh, for our children what they're learning. Um, and the, the following year, I worked on a piece of legislation uh, that actually restricted local governments from being able to collect uh, impact fee taxes earlier than they needed to. Uh, typically, what was happening is local governments were taking these these fees, which are really taxes because they're imposed on the on land development from from when taking they were taking this money or requiring it to be paid uh, before the property owner actually had any plan to develop the property. Um, and so what we did is we changed the law in Florida so that they could only take uh, to, they can only collect these taxes when the developer was actually going to make an improvement that had impact past his own his own property for road, for road extensions, sewer treatments, and things of that nature. Um, the last piece of legislation that I worked on um, was in we in 2019 we actually increased the um, the felony theft threshold in the state of Florida to $750 in Florida and then $300 since 1984 and had not been raised since then. And so in 2019, I spearheaded the legislation and actually increased it uh, to $750, which puts us in line with most of the states in our region, like Georgia, Texas, South Carolina, and so forth. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> you know, Byron, can, can you give me a, an example uh, of how you've worked with people who did not share your philosophy or values, and uh, what was the outcome? Because obviously, it, it's you know you've been in the Florida legislator, uh, you mm -hmm. have to work with people on the other side of the aisle. So, can you give us an example and how things worked out? 
Uh, no, that's, that's, I got a couple examples of that. I think, you know, if I go back to, you know, my bill dealing with um, uh, classroom education and the materials that were in there, I think the, the Democrats in the chamber and the Florida Education Association, that's a teachers union in Florida, uh, they were vehemently opposed to that bill. I mean, the teachers union was still opposed to it, you know, but I actually was able to get a couple of Democrats to end up to vote for that bill and, and see what we were really trying to accomplish. And what we wanted to do was really have transparency in the process, make sure that all parents, no matter where you come from or what your philosophies are, that you did have an opportunity to have input in what in what your child is learning and what other children in the community are learning. Um, and I think that when you when you kind of got behind closed doors, got away from the politics, and just talked about why it is important that parents and community members should have that access and have that ability, um, I got a couple of members of the Democrat the Democrat Party in Florida to agree with me and vote for the bill. Um, you know, what I've always found is that, you know, you have to be able to build these relationships and there has to be a trust factor um, that that um, that when you're pushing ideas that are conservative, that, you, that you're not just pushing them because some interest group told you to or because you think it might poll well, but because it is actually real reforms that are going to matter for the people of Florida and have an impact that it's going to be helpful to everybody. And so every time I bring a piece of legislation, that's kind of the way I always try to couch it and work it through the, the legislative process. Um, Byron, we all know how divisive the political environment is these days. <laughs> so um, yeah. how difficult is it to stand up to leadership when they want to pass a bill that you do not agree with? I mean, look, I'll tell you, <clears throat> it, it's hard to stand up to leadership. It's, it's not an easy thing. And, and I think it's important for the listeners to know why. Um, when you're in a legislative body, um, any bills that you want to get heard, any committees that you want to sit on, if you want to cha be a chairman of a committee, um, that stuff is run by party leadership that's, that controls the chamber. And in some respects, even if you're in a minority, party leadership will still dictate what committees you get to sit on. Um, and so if you are, have a passion for education policy or a passion for healthcare policy, if the leadership really wants a bill done, they can strip that from you and they can move you off of those committees and they can basically kill all your bills. Um, they can stop all of your appropriation requests that are things that are needed in your community. And that's some, that's kind of how they try to enforce discipline is what they, they like to talk about in the chamber. Uh, but, you know, my rule has always been um, that if this violates constitutional principles, it violates my principles, uh, then those are the times, you know, you just have to go against party leadership. Um, during the Parkland, the, during the aftermath of the tragedy that happened at Parkland, in, in, at the Parkland High School, uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, uh, there was a piece of legislation that came through the legislature called school safety. But in that bill, um, there was gun control in that bill. And I simply wasn't going to vote for gun control. And I had debates with the leadership on it. Um, but I basically told them, I was like, I just can't, I can't go with you guys on this one because it violates constitutional principles. Um, I, and I lost my appropriations that year. They were all cut out of the budget. But you, every member has a decision to make of whether they're going to hold fast to their principles or are they just going to, you know, follow, follow leadership, even though leadership, in my opinion, is doing the wrong thing. Um, it's, it is not easy to go against the leadership. And so, you know, I think as you evaluate elected officials and prospective elect, elected officials, you got to find people who you know are going to stand firm against party leadership. Because there's going to be a time when Republican leadership is going to want to do the wrong thing. They're going to want to acquiesce to the left. 
And that's when you got to have leaders who are going to stand firm and not going to buckle. You know, Byron, and I do appreciate you for standing up for our constitutional rights. Uh, unfortunately, some people in Tallahassee and even in D.C. don't realize that the words shall not infringe uh, pertain to the whole Constitution. The Constitution, folks, for you, those of you listening, the Constitution does not grant us rights. Our rights are, are inalienable and they're, they're granted by God. The Constitution is simply there to tell government, whether it's a floral legislator or D.C., when they are infringing on those rights, which is very important to know. Uh, Byron, talking a little bit, uh, switching over a little bit to your congressional candidacy for District 19, what is the vision that you have for your district? Um, well, you know what? It's, it's a couple of things. I think, first of all, Southwest Florida is a great place to live. Um, the people here, a lot of them come from all over the country. Um, in some respects, we are kind of a retirement uh, community for a lot of people who have worked and done well for themselves across the country. Um, it is a conservative area. Uh, so the big, our biggest at-home issue is water quality. That's something where our representative uh, has to make sure they're doing everything that they can uh, to get the resources to help do uh, Everglades restoration and other water water quality restoration um, um, activities and projects. And I think the reason why the, the next representative has to do that is because our water issues are largely created by decisions that the federal government made uh, 80 years ago with respect to Lake Okeechobee and the water flow system in South Florida overall. So it is a responsibility of the federal government to fix the problems. Um, so I think that's, that's number one. But number two, and more more, often, more importantly, uh, the voters of Southwest Florida are conservative people. And what they really want mm-hmm. and have always wanted is a representative who's going to stand firm on the Constitution, who is going to stand up to the left and not let the left get away with uh, their talking points, their cheap shots, uh, their nastiness and their negativity when it comes to politics. And so I think that, you know, you know my vision for uh, the area is for us to continue to be uh, the meritocracy and really be a place where Americans want to call home, whether they're retiring, whether they want to grow their family or whatever the case might be. And we have the building blocks to do that. But what our area needs out of a congressman, out of one of the more conservative areas in the country, is a, is a congressman, a representative who's going to go to Washington, not buckle to pressure, is going to actually stand for the principles that this district holds dear, um, and is going to be a real champion for these ideas, not just in Southwest Florida, but across the state of Florida and across the country. Perfect. Byron, we're going to go ahead and take our first commercial break. So folks, please stand by as uh, we have a word from our sponsors. At Parada Mortgage, we believe that there is a mortgage program for everyone. And so, we don't say no, we say how. The how are the keys to the American dream. We focus on results, communication, and urgency. And as a veteran-owned and operated mortgage company, we give back to our veterans. We are always at the ready. Call us now at 1-800-731-3024 for a free consultation for your purchase or refinance, or visit us at our website at www.paradamortgage.us to chat with us. Parada Mortgage, 1-800-731-3024, NMLS number 195839, Equal Housing Lender. Call for more information. Other restrictions may apply.
are back from our commercial break. We have Byron Donald on uh, the podcast today. Byron, thank you for being on. Of course, absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, Byron, you were right um, saying that Southwest Florida is a great place to live. I, I'm in your district, um, so um, I, I am excited to have you here today and ask you a few questions. Um, let me ask you, what is the one legislation that you would like to have passed in your first term if you're elected as the uh, District 19 candidate? Oh, man, there's, there's too many. Um, <laughs> the first, the first there, there's a lot of problems in Washington. Uh, the first one, honestly, if I could get it passed and we could do it, would be congressional term limits. Um, I think that the framers of the Constitution never envisioned that members of Congress would just go there and never leave um, and actually would make Washington, D.C. their home, would never go back to their districts, um, or would never turn over, frankly, seats of power to uh, the next person from their community. I think if you really look at how disgusting our politics have become, it's because you have men and women who've used these positions to uh, just confer power unto themselves. And, you know, the old the old axiom is true absolute power corrupts absolutely and so what you have now is instead of the people's business being done instead of um washington maintaining sound budgets monitoring our debts uh, making sure that governmental systems actually work efficiently and appropriately and that they stay inside the box of article one section eight to the the to define powers of congress what we have is a situation where you have uh, men and women who've been there far too long, who always want to give out goodies, who just want to uh, live by their ideology as opposed to living under the, the, the restraints that have been placed on the federal government by the United States Constitution. So I think uh, congressional term limits is the only way you're going to be able to accomplish that. And really, any any congressman going, anybody running for, for congressional office, if you were going to ask them what's their number one goal, it should be to return Washington to their constitutionally authorized duties and no more. And the most effective, efficient way you do that is with congressional term limits. <clears throat> um, and other things uh, I would I would really like you to do. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Santiago. I, I can no, go. No, I got no, so no, many. No. I'm just I'm just applauding it because uh, we've had several people on our show, and, and and not to knock them, but I think that's the first time I've heard an answer like that that I was actually impressed by. Uh, you know, congressional term limits is something that not everybody wants to talk about. But go ahead, finish what you were going to say. Well, I, I think after that, then you get into matters of the budget. I mean, truth be told, um, our, the entitlement states must be reformed. There's no way uh, going forward that the United States is going to be able to afford these systems that's currently co uh, constructed. I think, of course, being in Southwest Florida, we have an older population. And so the first thing you have to do is for people who are living here, who are retired, who are on these systems, you want to relay to them that we're not really going to deal with you. Like the promises that were made to you, the things that you're currently uh, getting, uh, we're going to maintain that structure. But if you want it to frankly last your lifetime and for, if you want those programs to continue, they have to have substantial reforms. And that's, you know, a lot of times it's called the third rail in politics. But the problem is, frankly, we had too many leaders who at the first sign of trouble, at the first time of, 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 uh, of pushback on entitlement reform, you know, they would basically, I hate to say it, but they would tuck tail and run for the hills. 
uh, because they were saying it's, it's too hard or it's too tough. But I think that you just have to have strong leadership and there's a way that you discuss these things. The other, the other, the third big thing is immigration reform. And I know we could talk about that extensively, but. Yeah. Let me, you know, touching up a little bit on what you were saying earlier, our national debt hit over, our, our national debt, sorry, hit over 20, $22 trillion this year alone. How do you plan to reduce that debt? And does that plan include maybe even raising taxes? Um, okay, so number one, it doesn't include raising taxes, and here's why. The federal government actually collects more tax revenue than it ever has in the history of a country. And at the same time that the left is saying that the Trump tax cuts are only for the rich and for big corporations, um, the purpose of tax policy is not to equalize America. The purpose of tax policy is to raise necessary revenue for the government to pay for its constitutionally authorized duties. No more and no less. And so there is more money going to washington the problem is we don't have regular order in the budget process these things are negotiated between the speaker of the house and the president of the senate and the white house members of congress really have no interplay into the budgetary process so all of that has to change the second big so, so you don't raise taxes the second big thing you do is that you have to go in and you do have to gut a lot of these agencies you maybe have to eliminate one or two of them Department of Education is the one that first comes to mind. There's really no need to have it at the federal level, especially when every state has a very robust Department of Education. So that's the second big thing that you do. The third big thing, and this is why I always, that's why I talk about entitlement reform even before we started really talking about the budget, is that 80% of the federal budget, whether it's on budget or off budget, is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. If you're not touching them, you're not serious about getting our debt under control. And so that's the part where I think even for people who are senior citizens who are on Medicare, who are on Social Security, the point is how do we begin to, we're doing a lot with COVID-19 about bending the curve, where the only way you're going to bend our debt curve is to actually reform our entitlement systems. It's something that is long overdue, should have been done a long time ago. That's that's um, that's great to know, Byron, that um, you don't plan on raising taxes. <laughs> um, no. You know, COVID-19 has really uh, played a number of us on us here. I mean, it's, it's kind of like um, the economy is on hold now. Everything that we gain, it's kind of like back to where we started and took away from what our president has, uh, the great job he has done. And, um, and he showed that we're very dependent on China. And um, so my question to you is, given the current circumstances, what would you do to move us away from any dependence on China? Ooh, that's a big question. I think that, uh, <clears throat> a couple of things on that. I think the president has already started that by restructuring a lot of our trade deals. One of the reasons why uh, manufacturing left our country for places like China, uh, for places like uh, Indonesia, Taiwan, um, Mexico, and South America to a, to degrees is, is a couple of reasons. Number one, we've signed trade deals in the past that were terrible, and they definitely need to be renegotiated. The president's taking a big step towards that. The second big thing about bringing manufacturing back is this goes to tax policy and regulatory policy. You cannot have a tax policy which puts businesses at a disadvantage compared to other places around the world and then expect them to keep operations here in the United States 
except for maybe the corporate offices. If you want that stuff back, then you have to actually streamline our tax system so that it's, com that it's competitive. And in some respects, it becomes a haven for business compared to other places around the world. The United States should not be in the business of making sure that every country can survive financially. That's not the purpose of our government. The purpose of our government is to make sure that our country is strong and that our citizens have jobs. And, and I, have not, I don't say not have jobs, has an environment where commerce can take place in the most efficient manner. That's really what government is supposed to be doing. Um, those are, I think those are the two big ways to do it. The third big way is with the regulatory environment. Um, you have to begin to slash regulations. Again, the president has done a tremendous job in starting that. The most unfortunate thing we get in our politics is that at some point, President Trump's no longer going to be president. And we'll have a new president. And unfortunately, and this is why November is so important, unfortunately, if we have Joe Biden as president, all he's going to do his first couple of years is work to undo all the things that President Trump put into place, which have created such a great economic boom up until this coronavirus crisis, which has shut down everything. You know, Byron, <clears throat> speaking of uh, economy and, and, and places being affected, our uh, brother, our fellow Americans uh, to the south of us in Puerto Rico, uh, they've been hit so bad, especially with uh, the, the medical field leaving Puerto Rico and moving to China because of some incentives that were removed by then-President Bill Clinton and his administration. Uh, just recently, a couple of us from the Republican National Hispanic Assembly of Florida went to Puerto Rico uh, because of the earthquakes, and we've seen uh, what, is, what is literally a ghost town where these medical hubs used to be. What, what can you do? Uh, or what would you be able to do uh, if elected to Congress to help bring some of that the, the medical manufacturing uh, manufacturers back to Puerto Rico and even take it a step further? Uh, would you actually propose some type of exemption to Puerto Rico from the Jones Act? Well, I mean, I'll take the second half of your question first. I got to study the Jones Act a lot more than I have. So I, I don't want to comment on it and say the wrong thing on that respect. Um, the, the bigger part, I would say, is that Puerto Rico, um, um, they have some special issues um, just governmentally and with respect to their debt, their debt issues that create a lot of additional burdens. Uh, Puerto Rico, in a lot of respects, has never taken care of their budget in an appropriate way. And because they don't have the robust economy that we have, um, the reality when you overspend has hit them incredibly hard. So that's why it's difficult for manufacturing, especially after the earthquakes that have taken place, to go back so quickly because the government itself doesn't have the wherewithal and the strength to make sure that it streamlines its regulation, it can get back to life as life uh, to normal life as quickly as possible without an immense amount of aid from from the United States and from and from other people in around the world. So that's the biggest issue we have with Puerto Rico. A lot of these a lot of these uh, governmental issues or societal issues really stem from do you have a poorly run government? I think in the United States, the thing that's really um, helped us is that our economy and the American people, their ability to go out and pursue wealth and to, and to maintain property and the, and the basic freedoms uh, that are just so plentiful here in the United States around property rights and around individual liberty, frankly, are taken, are taken uh, some of which we might take for granted or some people might take for granted here in the United States. Other countries need to need to. Um, follow that lead and they would have better economies even at the times of disaster like Puerto Rico. But Puerto Rico's situation um, is far more than just aid from the United States. The governmental system itself, um, we talk about corruption sometimes here, 
but in other parts of the world, it, it's 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 really disgusting, and it's unfortunate for the people of Puerto Rico because they have every natural resource you could ever want to be able to come and produce, uh, but their governmental system and their debt loads and their overspending have really crippled Puerto Rico. Um, Byron, I, I I think you know I'm originally from Puerto Rico, so um, mm. uh, I'm very familiar with with the corruption and um, the political system there. Um, I've always been a statehood kind of girl. I, I, I do believe that what, uh, what the main problem of our little island is that we are not a state or we're not right. independent. We're like right in the middle. So my, so would you support um, some kind of um, uh, legislation um, or even explore to, for Puerto Rico to become a state in the near future? In the near future, no. I'll be honest about that one. Don't think I don't think I would support statehood. I would support independence. Um, I think that uh, any any and it, I understand they're like a you're a quasi nation to a degree, but any nation before we bring in statehood, I think you really have to prove that you can stand on your own without a shadow of a doubt. Um, unfortunately, we have states in the United States that don't frankly can stand on their own and become independent. I'm not, I'm not advocating for that. But I think if we're going to add a state into the into the union, um, then they have, they have to be they have to prove that they can stand on their own two feet as a nation. And then there's mutual advantages on both parties to add them to the United States. You know, <clears throat> and and I don't want to get into a back and forth. I'm not Puerto Rican, but I have a lot of friends that are Puerto Rican, and and they've kind of adopted me as a uh, a, uh, a Puerto Rican by adoption. Um, as right. they say in, in a very joking way, but you know, I I actually did a, a whole contrast of the benefits of Puerto Rico becoming a state. Uh, and, and again, this is just my opinion. I understand there's people that have other opinions, but you know, right now uh, you have a bunch. We, we have a whole island full of American citizens that are not even uh, they're not even able to vote for their president. I mean, they yeah. have no representation in Congress uh, or or in the Senate. I mean, that's, that's like taxation without representation. They, they, you know, they have nobody to speak up for them. Um, I did a whole, uh, I think it was like a five-part piece on, you know, steps to getting Puerto Rico into a statehood, allowing them to go through the bankruptcy process, allowing a full term of a governor there that is from the mainland that can help fix all the corruption, you know, drain the swamp in Puerto Rico. Once that is done... And the next ele next election cycle comes on, then you can have somebody from the island to run for for governor, regardless if it's Republican or Democrat, and and then start right. shifting the narrative. But you know, when, when we have this mentality that, you know, oh, all this corruption in Puerto Rico, yes, there's a lot of corruption, but I bet you if somebody like President Trump went into Puerto Rico, um, I'm gonna throw this out there. You know, why not put Rick Scott as the governor? Or Senator Rubio as a governor uh, <laughs> for a full term there, you know, and and, ha and have them clean the swamp. Uh, or who knows, maybe we can have a Byron Donalds before he ends up running for president, maybe uh, step in and clean up Puerto Rico. But the point is, is that, you know, at some point we're, we're going to have to do something about our fellow Americans in the island because they're going through a very tough time. And a right. lot of them, you know, it, it's really not their fault, but... Let's hold it right there for just a minute. We're going to jump on our final commercial break.
Elevate Marketing Strategies is designed to help business owners and influencers understand the true value of their touch and their impact on their journey, from websites to social media to complete branding. Let us elevate your brand. For more information, please call us at 386-279-8600. We are back from our commercial break, and we are on uh, Hispanics Lead Right. We have Byron Donalds today, and Yvette, I think you were up with a question. Yes, um, Byron, on, now I'm going to go into a little personal question. So, sure. who inspires you? Wow. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I, I, it is a good question. Um, you know, if I, if I think back through time, um, you know, Frederick Douglass is somebody that, you know, and what I read about him, uh, that inspires, it does, because, you know, not only did he stand, obviously, against slavery, was a leader in the abolitionist movement, he was also a strong believer in individual liberty um, and in constitutionalism. Um, so he's, you know, definitely somebody that I look up to, I guess, from a historical perspective. Um, more personally, I mean, my mom, she... You know, even though I probably don't tell her enough, but, uh, you know, she uh, really really instilled in me a hard work ethic and just paying attention to detail. Uh, my mom probably doesn't realize I do remember all her lectures. Uh, but, you know, she she was really the person, the first person to ever really believe in me. And so, you know, I always, you know, look up to her as, a, as probably the biggest role model in my life. Oh, that's a great answer. Aaron, I think, um, you know, right now, before we continue with some of the more personal stuff, uh, mm -hmm. we're, we've been having some issues with uh, the PPP. And um, that, uh, I think you, you, you actually went through something very personal about that. Do you want to let Byron know and explain the situation and what Byron might do if, if he was actually the one in Congress now and not uh, somebody like, let's just say, Val Demings, for example? Yes, um, Byron, um, as you know, because I'm from your area, I, I own a small business. Um, I, I, I have about 49 employees, um, been in business for a while, over 15 years. And of course, like many small businesses, we applied for the uh, PPP uh, grant, you know, and help from the government, um, hoping that somebody would actually um, help us to... Um, to continue um, being able to employ these people. Yeah, I, I didn't shut down. I still have my employees. I don't have a lot of work for them to do, but, you know, I'm not one to lay them off. So an example, today I got a call, and, of course, I didn't make the first cut. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to big corporations and big food chains getting millions of dollars. So my question to you is, um, if you were in Congress today, what would you do to make sure that the real small businesses, people like me, and there's many of us out there that are feeling left behind, would be receiving assistance from the government and would be represented, you know, that somebody would represent the working class because to be really honest with you, I don't think we're represented. I think we're the, the, the we're, we're, for, we're the forgotten class. And so what would you do about that? What, what would you do? 
That's my question. Well, actually, I would do, there is a number of things I would have done. And just so you know, I know that my wife, uh, she actually was applying for the program too, uh, for her small business that she owns and she runs. And so I definitely understand that with what you're, the, whole, the, the hoops you were trying to jump through to try to make this uh, possible. But I think a couple of things. Number one, the rules that a lot of the Democrats, specifically Nancy Pelosi, put into the CARES Act was just completely ridiculous for the type of situation we're in right now. Uh, when you're in a situation like this and the Treasury is trying to get dollars, frankly, capital into businesses, large and small, mind you, and they're trying to get it in, you can't put a bunch of rules and rubrics into it because what was happening on the banking side is that the banks were basically trying to always go back to the Treasury Department to get more guidance on how they could actually administer the program. Uh, so that was that's the biggest problem we have with the CARES Act. The second biggest act is, is that they didn't put enough money in the PPP. I mean, you can make an easy estimate that there are two to three million small businesses in the United States. So the, the, the $350 billion that they appropriated simply wasn't going to be enough. It was never enough when they were debating it on the floor of the Senate and on the floor of the House. And so for things like the Kennedy Museum and all this other crap that got money um, in the CARES Act simply because the Democrats needed sweeteners for themselves, that was abhorrent. Um, and it's, it's actually more, it's more disgusting that the party that always says they're advocating for the little guy took, frankly took funding out of the mouths of many small businesses who are small, who are really small operations, who aren't like a, a mid-sized uh, company or they're not public they may not be publicly traded but they're not a mid-sized company that has many deep relationships with the banking community um, can access capital in many different ways um, have many partners who could probably put up additional capital to kind of get over a week or two weeks until they figure out what the financial structure of the of, of their business is going to be um, you had to in my my own personal estimates you had to appropriate at least eight to nine hundred billion dollars. Now, as a conservative, I would tell you, like even when I ran the numbers, I had to like, you know, shake, like open my eyes again and, and, and kind of shake myself at what I was looking at. But the reality of coronavirus, the situation is, is that government, the governors and the president of the United States made a decision to essentially have people distance themselves. And a lot of governors shut down what they call non-essential businesses, which is a whole other thing I don't really agree with. But be that as it may, we're in this situation not because of the American people. We're here because of a virus and because of governmental response. So in this situation, the government has a responsibility to actually make sure that people can continue their lives and their livelihoods after this pandemic passes and it's going to pass. Those are, those are the things I would have done if I was there. Thank you, Byron. We have two more questions for you, uh, Byron. Sure. What does the Constitution mean to you? Oh, it's everything. The Constitution has created the greatest government, the greatest, not just government, but the greatest society man's ever known. There's been no other society in the history of the planet that has allowed poor people to become rich, rich people to become poor, people to choose to do freely um, with with voluntary actions, um, the ability to speak clearly when you disagree, the ability to vote for your leaders, to have a voluntary change of power every four years at the presidential level, every four years in, in, with every governor in, in those 50 states, and with many members in the legislative branch, whether it's state, federal, state, or even local county commissioners, mayors, sheriffs. 
uh, to have the voluntary transfer of power is something you have just never seen in the history of the world. And that's all based upon the United States Constitution. I firmly believe that if it wasn't for the Constitution, I don't think the, the, the slaves, black slaves would have been free um, by the Civil War. I think that slavery would still have continued well into the 1900s, right, well into the, to the 20th century, if it wasn't for uh, the United States Constitution. I think it is probably the greatest document of how to divide power and how to limit uh, governmental authority that's ever been created. Amen, brother. I, I, compl- I, yeah, I completely agree. I think this is the, the greatest country in the world. Um, yeah. I have one more personal question. Sure. Um, so where do you see yourself five years from now? <laughs> in five years, <laughs> probably I'll probably still be a member of Congress and, and, and pulling my hair out as a result. Um, <laughs> honestly, you know, my life is, my life is, I'm really blessed. Um, five years from now, I could be a member of Congress or I could just be a regular citizen again. You know, the one thing I've learned even being elected for four years is that uh, political life is not permanent. It should never be permanent life. Um, And so I think you go, you serve. Um, If you want to go higher and serve at a higher level, if the people want you to do that, then you go do that. And if not, you go home. Um, And and it's it's really that simple. Byron, we thank you for being on today's podcast. Do you have any final words uh, where people can find you, where your social media handles are? Something you want the voters to know why you are the candidate that they should vote for in the primary and in the general election. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, I guess really I want to thank you first for your time. Um, America is at a crossroads. It seems that every election cycle we seem to be at a crossroads. But I think what we what's important is that you have leaders who not only just can say they're going to vote the right way or support important issues like real immigration reform, um, that respects citizenship um, and that it provides a pathway to citizenship for legal immigrants, which is essential, uh, but does penalize illegal immigration. And we have to have a system like that. But it's easy to say that on campaign trails. You've got to have somebody who has actually done this, who's voted this way, who has supported these principles and these ideas when they were not in the limelight. Um, but even more so than that, you've got to have somebody who can actually communicate these ideas to younger voters and to all Americans. You know, as a Republican, I always say it's easy to go into a room full of Republicans and talk about the Constitution. But can you go into a room of Democrats and talk about the Constitution? Can you have a healthy conversation about limited government, why it's important? Can you talk about why free enterprise and free markets are critical on college campuses? You have to have elected officials who can do that. And I think that I'm the only candidate. Not, well, let me back up. I'm, I don't think I'm the only candidate. I know I'm the only candidate in this race uh, for uh, the 19th Congressional District in Florida that can accomplish those things. So I'm just asking the voters for their vote and their support, uh, because if I go to Washington, they're going to have a conservative they know they can trust and they can count on. And so, um, you know, you can go to my website, ByronDonalds.com. Follow me on Twitter at ByronDonalds or follow me on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ByronDonalds. Byron, again, thank you for being on this week's episode. Folks, that is this week's episode of Hispanics Lead Right podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening and God bless.